Welcome to the third edition of our Matters of Principle podcast. Today we are here with a special guest, Michaela Miller from OSPI. It's actually Dr. Michaela Miller now. She is um, the third uh, person we've interviewed for our podcast. The first was Jean Sherritt, uh, Edie Harding from the Gates Foundation was the second, and then Michaela is the third. Like Jean and Edie Harding, uh, Michaela is also a winner of the AWC President's Award. She received that award for her work on uh, TPEP, the Teacher Principal Evaluation, the Time Pilot, now Project or Program. And we also have with us AWSP's Ron Sisson, Director of Principal Support and Elementary Programs. Michaela, so what's your title now at OSPI? Um, thanks, David. I am the Deputy Superintendent uh, at OSPI under Chris. Okay. All right. Uh, so, a little background. Michaela used to be my boss at OSPI <laughs> before I came here to AWSP. So, we have a lot of history and a lot of good times. Um, and some of those good times involved CPAP. Uh, said no one ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, talk, let's go back and talk a little bit about what your role at, Oda, uh, uh, what your role at OSPI was before TPEP and kind of how you got tasked with leading, you know, such a small little inconsequential project. Okay. Thanks, David. Um, so, yeah, before, so I came to OSPI in 2007 um, out of the Northwestern Public Schools and uh, was hired to <clears throat> primarily run the national board program uh, for the state. And that at the time was a growing, uh, increasingly growing program. Um, the stipend went into place at the same time, and so the program had really ballooned in 2007, 2008. Um, and then in 2010, uh, Dr. Alan Burke asked if I would be interested in running this little um, new piece of legislation around teacher and principal evaluation. Um, at the same time, as folks remember, the, um, the state, as was the country, was enduring a pretty big recession, and so there were a lot of cutbacks. So at the same time that I um, took on the teacher and principal evaluation project, I also was running the beginning educator support program. So running three educator effectiveness programs, um, but I would say about 95% of my time was spent um, getting TPEP up and off the ground. If you want to go back to some of that context from that time, that was when Race to the Top was a big thing, and there was a lot of um, consternation about the application and what would come out of that. And looking back, I, mean, I know we talked about at the time that it was a, kind of a blessing in disguise for some areas that we didn't get a race to the top grant, that the flexibility that it allowed us uh, as a state to kind of create our own system on our own timeline. Um, it's a big part of why the process looks the way it does today. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, I think the, um, the interestingly enough, we're entering a new time with federal oversight that really is a pendulum swing from the Obama-Duncan administration. So 2008, 9, and 10 saw a couple of things happened. Race to the Top was really a opportunity for um, incredible federal overreach, some would say, um, right on the heels of, uh, of all of the funding. Um, at that time, the ARA funding went into place to kind of shore up um, states' uh, systems um, and uh, shore up folks from the recession. So there was an opportunity for the feds to really shape education policy. And that's exactly what happened with Race to the Top. Uh, Washington, uh, along with most other states, applied for those funds, and we did not receive those funds, in part because of the decisions that um, 
the original writers of the application chose in what we would be willing to change in terms of, of state legislation. So um, after that, though, because of the initial race to the top, there were lots of federal policies that went into place, including uh, teacher and principal evaluation shifts and changes that uh, set the direction uh, through race to the top and then trickled down into those that didn't receive the funds, still managing to um, change state legislation around similar policies around evaluation. And then looking back at that, you know, I, I'm not sure, I think most people have an idea, but maybe not everybody understands the process or can remember back. Can you talk a little bit about the pilot districts? You know, we had eight pilot districts in one consortium of eight small districts of the ESD 101. And what the intent was behind it, how it was kind of developed by educators, a lot of feedback. We, uh, you know, recorded everything in terms of all the meetings, post everything online, and we tried to really make the, the process as transparent as possible. Yeah, so in 2010, the first um, piece of legislation, uh, 5895, put into place a pilot um, that you just described with eight districts, eight large, medium to large-ish dis districts, and then a, and a consortium of smaller districts from eastern Washington out of ESD 101. And that um, set of pilots, I would say, did all of the yeoman's work of the, um, of the uh, TPEP process itself. There was a basically two years up until um, 2012 when the legislation shifted again based on really the work that the pilots had done um, up to that point. I think there were two or three main um, pieces of the legislation that really helped to drive the work forward. One of them, of course, is the pilots themselves. We had a selection process. I believe there were between 50 to 60 applicants for those spots to begin with, and a set of stakeholders decided who those original pilots were going to be. So that was the first piece, is that having educators at the table to make these shifts and changes away from a binary kind of pass-fail system um, where about 99% of the folks in the state <clears throat> got a satisfactory evaluation into something that was more meaningful and um, more of an opportunity for discussing growth around your professional career. Um, and then the second, I think, piece the, of the legislation that was really critical and that we took advantage of was the establishing the steering committee of stakeholder groups. And that um, work really <clears throat> was the primary work of my life for about three years, was working with um, stakeholder groups like AWSP, WEA, um, the Washington State PTA, the Washington School Directors Association, um, the Wa uh, Washington um, Association of School Administrators were on, was on that committee in addition to OSPI. And that group of stakeholders really stuck together for about, um, well, they still actually meet, um, but for the primary work of the development, stuck together to make important decisions about um, each step of the development process of TPEP. And I think if that group hadn't stuck together, there probably would have been a dis disintegration of the policy itself um, of TPEP. Um, and people would have backed into their own corners and made decisions. So uh, we tried to, from OSPI, keep that group together and preemptively, um, before each legislative session, 
subsequently make some decisions as a group of what would be best for the next part of the system development. So um, the pilots, the steering committee, and then eventually as we started to see the work um, growing, the regional support from the ESDs became increasingly important in bringing on the educational service districts and then um, additional districts that were in the first phases of implementation. So it was truly a, um, a group effort uh, from everyone that was involved, all the stakeholder groups that were involved. Um, and I think uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, of the process itself, is that it was developed by, um, state, by the educators themselves. Principals and teachers were at the very heart of the, the work that we did. By the end of the process, with the, there were two rounds, if I remember correctly, of the, we called them regional implementation grants, you know, RIGs, and there was a one and a two. And it seemed like, if my memory is correct, that it was like over two-thirds of the districts in the state were kind of involved early and still had some kind of say in development of the system before it kind of shifted into gear. So, Ron, um, you were in North Thurston Public Schools at the time that the that, that TPEP was under development. And so you were one of the first kind of early adopters of it. So from, from your perspective, as somebody who was kind of, um, you know, testing it out, if you will, what, was, what were the early days of TPEP like for you? And then right now, actually, I should mention, uh, Michaela mentioned the steering committee. You were, uh, serve on the steering committee for AWSP as well as Gary Kidd. So yeah. talk a little bit about um, maybe uh, the early days of TPEP for you and where it's shifted now. Yeah, it was really interesting. So as a, in my first couple of years as a principal, I you know, evaluated teachers under you know, that old binary satisfactory, unsatisfactory system, and almost everybody was satisfactory. Um, you know, moving to the, the new evaluation system allowed us an opportunity to have a framework that had multiple levels of proficiency. So we could talk about what instruction looked like along a continuum, um, and what that roadmap might look like to move from point A to point B in terms of your instructional practice in a variety of areas. So I felt like as a principal, it really gave me a great framework to, um, to have conversations with my staff around what quality instruction looked like, where somebody was, and you know, what would goals potentially look like to improve instruction. Um, you know, being in a a pilot district was interesting because, you know, th there wasn't a roadmap ahead of us in terms of what it looked like. So there was definitely trial and error. You, you fell down and skinned your knees a couple of times along the way. Um, and at the same time, you, it also was pretty rewarding to be a part of a process that was kind of groundbreaking um, and to involve, to be sitting at the table with teachers and administrators and other stakeholder groups to talk about what should and could this process look like, what, does, what potential is out there to develop something that really talks about growth as opposed to you are or you aren't. Um, was really rewarding. It was a great process. One of the things that, um, you know, from back in the day is that for principals, it was kind of a tough deal because I've seen them on both sides. So you had a new evaluation system to evaluate your staff on, and principals themselves were also the subject of a new evaluation system. So some of that tension still exists today for principals, and they're still trying to kind of cope with the workload. Um, so I think we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, let's talk a little bit about the instructional frameworks and kind of how those have came into play. They, um, I think, were firmed up with the 6696 that put them into RCW. Mm -hmm. And then obviously here at AWSP, uh, most of the principals in the state 
or evaluated on our framework. And so I know that's something that Ron is looking at as director of uh, principal support for framework revisions and kind of what needs to change. He meets with some of the framework authors. Uh, is that yearly? Uh, we meet quarterly. Quarterly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, Michaela's going to start us off and talk a little bit about frameworks, how they fit into instruction, evaluation, and, and what that kind of has looked like. Sure. <clears throat> so, um, from the start of the work, um, it was, we knew we were moving away from um, kind of a simplistic view of teaching with the old system. We had seven different areas, but they weren't defined. Um, There was no rubric. They were in statute. And so um, the new legislation um, put in place eight new new criteria for teachers and principals. And those eight criteria still were undefined in statute, but we knew we needed some frame um, for folks to actually uh, judge on a more than a binary system. So we, in teaching, uh, on the teaching side of things, there were actually a lot of people doing a lot of work around frameworks um, across the country. And so, um, and there's been a lot of work around um, certification uh, related to um, teaching and learning. And so there were lots of places to look for um, what that framework ultimately um, would look like, and at the begin- very beginning of the process, um, the pilot districts had free reign to just kind of uh, experiment and do what they wanted to do with those, um, with both a rubric-based system and what does good teaching and learning look like. Um, over time, that became it became increasingly um, we became increasingly aware that we needed to actually. Um, ground the work in um, something a little bit more valid and reliable for principals to use, especially given the high stakesness of evaluation. Um, It became increasingly apparent that um, even though teachers and principals know um, the real components at a deep level, uh, the psychometrics around rubric creation and all of that is is pretty complex. And so uh, we had partners across the country, Charlotte Danielson, Robert Marzano, um, and then the um, uh, cell up in at UW was a partner as well. So you had three frameworks that actually kind of started to bubble up to the top. Um, and although there were hurdles um, in that uh, development, and we had some folks that had developed their own frameworks uh, out of the pilot districts, and that became really challenging because there was a lot of work put into the pilot development work, um, and and it was a hard shift, but eventually it became increasingly apparent for the legislature to actually say, no, we need to settle on um, three options for frameworks, and those three became the ones that um, the state adopted. And thus, districts were then actually given kind of a pathway towards um, towards which framework um, to use, and many then started to develop all of the professional learning that went along with those three original frameworks. Um, so the, the idea is kind of tightness at the top of the system, so tightness around the, the three frameworks, but then a lot of say at the local level about how do you implement that, what kind of professional learning do you put into place, and so the looseness at the local level, because Washington State is such a local control state, there needs to be that kind of tight looseness at the state and the local level, and so 
Um, what was really exciting is to see the kinds of um, innovativeness at the local level about implementation. And the advantage, and I hope we have, I think we will have the same opportunity as we're rolling out ESSA with this tight looseness. But the real advantage to that is that even though there are some common set of a common set of standards or common set of uh, frameworks, the implementation of how you actually go about um, trying that at the local level, there's some freedom with that. And I think whenever you're having uh, staff take a risk around their own practice, around um, around what's going to really be a cutting edge innovation, you have to have that ability to tr try some things out. So. Um, that was really the opportunity we had with the slow rollout of TPEP is being able to have folks really try what's going to work when we actually do this for real and implement this. Um, and then at the, on the principal side of things, I would say, um, and I'll let Ron jump in here too, there were from a, from a policy perspective, there were really few, there are fewer um, rubrics to speak of um, at the at the national or at the state level, and so this gave AWSP the opportunity to step in and really design what a framework for the principles in Washington State. So I would say Washington was again cutting edge, um, looking at national examples. Uh, the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards has a set of principal standards. You have the national and national secondary and elementary school principal association that has had sets of standards. And then, of course, anybody that's been through a principal program has the ISLIC standards to look at. So there were a set of standards through which the um, AWSP led a process of developing uh, the the actual framework that went into place. Ron, do you want to reflect on that? I know, I mean, if Gary Kip were here with us, he couldn't make it at the last minute, but he would talk a little bit about the history of the AWSP leadership framework, and I know, like what Michaela said, um, I believe that that work had started a little bit before the TPEP process, so it was underway, and it happened to just be really good timing, and um, so having the kind of the, um, the rails and, and the TPEP process guiding the, the development of the leadership framework was very helpful, I think, at the time. Because like Michaela said, there really wasn't a whole lot out there. So, um, you know, talk to, to us about your role with the framework now. And um, I guess before I give the mic over to you, there's a really cool quote that we found from um, Simon Sinek, who is a famous TED Talk, TED Talk speaker. It says, rule books tell people what to do. Frameworks guide people how to act. Rule books insist on discipline, Frameworks allow for creativity. So with that, we're going to kind of reflect on our framework. And yeah, I, I think one of the unique things about the AWSP leadership framework is that it, it, like you said, the work had already started. And then when statute kind of delineated what those eight evaluation criterion were to be, it, it became really easy for that to fall into line. So one of the things we know about the instructional frameworks in our state is every one of them needs to be crosswalked to match statute by the, the uh, evaluation criteria. AWSP was able to build the framework to match the criteria. So it's, it's uh, you know, straight one through one-to-one. One. One yeah. yeah, it's, it's, and it's allowed us to take the, the culture of our state and the beliefs of our state and our association, our membership, and start to talk about what good leadership, quality leadership looks like in a building. So um, about 95% of the districts in our state use the AWSP leadership framework because it's one-to-one, -one, it's a match, and, and 
many university programs use it. So it's um, it's what people are used to. And, you know, the job of the principal is difficult enough having to learn an entirely different set of leadership um, standards, you know, would just compound that. Um, where we are now is that, you know, the framework was written several years ago, and we all know that leadership and the principalship has changed over time. And, um, you know, just like our the folks on the instructional side, you know, our being diligent around our framework means that we go back and take a look at, so what still makes sense, what's changed in the principalship, and where do we need to go? So we're actually, as we speak, pulling groups of folks together to start to take a look around how do we draw equity out in a more pronounced fashion in our framework? Um, you know, are there parts of it that have become obsolete or as we've kind of walked through it for a few years, realize that we want, might want to shift some things around. So that's the work ahead of us. So talk a little bit about what's next then. So what do you think is next for TPEF as a system? Are there big things that um, you know, we haven't accomplished yet with it? Do we, how do we, like I guess reflecting back, is it, and I know this varies greatly district by district, but from, you know, the real top-down 3,000-foot level, uh, have we started to see some of the, the goals of the TPEP and improved teaching, improved leadership, you know, that common set of language, so we're just on the same page and everybody has kind of the same expectations of what good teaching looks like, what good leadership looks like, and, um, you know, I guess what tweaks we need to make to, you know, keep moving it forward. So I would say um, going deeper with the work uh, is the next challenge. Um, I think, you know, it's TPEP is only as good as what you do with it at the local level, to be honest. So um, it can be a piece of paper that you, I mean, it can revert easily back to a checklist if you, if you wanted it to. Um, or it can be a, a process by which you have deep, professional conversations about your own practice, reflect on those, and then get better each time um, with uh, support from uh, an administrator that really understands deeply what those changes need to happen in your classroom. So um, there's always room for growth um, with this process. I would say the two things that I think are on the um, horizon that I would love to see embedded in the TPAP process and that I've actually, I know one is going to be a focus, is the focus on student growth and how that actually manifests. Um, I think there are great examples across the state of looking at student work, analyzing student work over time, and then making instructional changes based on those, uh, those observations. And then really um, using multiple measures so that you can see where the kids are at and use that alongside kind of more objective measures, I am using air quotes here, objective measures at the state level um, that can help inform where we go as a system with with kids. So I think though, if you're marrying, if we're truly doing the work right, then we're marrying the kinds of interim and benchmark assessments with the state level measurement and being able to say, okay, as a system, here's where we need to go, here's where we need to get better, especially around, obviously, math and ELA, we have a a ton of, of, of um, resources to, to help support those that merger of those uh, measures. But um, increasingly, I think it's important in, um, in classes aside from just ELA and math so that we're looking really looking at science and social studies and, um, dare I say, even arts and other things that are critical to, um, to kids' success. The second piece that I would say is on the horizon that um, 
also blends well with the ESSA update conversation that we'll have in just a minute, um, is really looking at the opportunity gaps of our kids. And we can do that through the TPEP process. You can look at where are the places where we really need to spend some time on our subgroup populations that are having um, and it doesn't, it could be non-cognitive issues, um, absenteeism and other things. So there is an opportunity within the TPEP process itself, I think, to look at both cognitive and non-cognitive outcomes of kids and then really do a through line back to where are the teachers and then where are the educational administrators, leaders in that kind of um, system change. So I think there's a lot of opportunity on those two fronts, student growth in particular, um, and then opportunity gaps or, or achievement gaps that we need to focus on with kids. I, I love that you framed the data piece that way. I think that you know we've spent probably a decade in our state um, in a lot of places experiencing data abuse and how people are using the numbers to make judgments about whether we're doing well or we're doing not whether we're not, um, without looking deeper and, and looking at multiple data sets and multiple data points. Um, you know, thinking about TPEP and where we are with that and, and people still grappling with the student growth piece, um, can you talk a little bit about what you would see those conversations starting to look like or how, how you would see the field needing to start to respond to how do we look at student growth the right way? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, it all, I think it all comes out of really tight, and this, I know this is really challenging too, because there can be a real top-down approach to professional learning communities, but I, I, I really mean high-functioning professional learning communities or communities of practice um, that are focused around, um, and the ownership is really at the classroom level around this. So um, it is not an overlay of, of kind of a top-down district level, and I know there's, you know, there's a, some give and take with that. There always has to be some sort of accountability piece with this, but if we're doing this right, then teachers are equipped with the kinds of resources, data in particular, um, to be able to make in those kinds of decisions. And so one of the challenges with that, and, and a lot of districts are doing an excellent job with this, which is getting data into the classroom as in a very timely way. And that's really challenging. I think that's the next kind of wave of what we're going to be able to do with technology is really say at some point the data that we really need to make informed decisions about student growth really have to get to the classroom level as quickly as possible. So the turnaround on SBAC has gotten, you know, shorter and shorter as we get better at this, and I think that's going to be increasingly an important thing from the state level that we can do. But I also think it's incumbent on districts to say, what is our turnaround on some of this? And then I would also argue that, I mean, teachers are really the holders of that, of a lot of that data in their classroom. So, you know, where are we on interim or benchmark from, coming from the district level? And then classroom-based assessments are going to drive this as well. So um, I think getting a data dashboard in front of, of, of teachers as quickly as possible is, is probably the next step because if they have the data and the principals are working alongside those teachers, then I think it's kind of an unstoppable um, prospect that we have is really getting that data. And we're at a point, I think, with our technology where we can really do this in a very productive way. But um, 
but I think there are some hurdles that we have to overcome um, with some of that uh, technology and funding and all of those things. But um, I think I see that as the next kind of frontier. So when you think about the where we are in terms of practice around the state, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how appropriate is it for formative data to be part of student growth, um, especially student growth goals for an evaluation, or like you said, the non-cognitive data. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you hear a district say that I'm not allowed to use those kinds of things as part of my student growth, can you talk a little bit about the appropriateness of using those measures as part of student growth measures? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, so from a, from a practical standpoint, formative assessment is your best driver of student growth. It is your, it should be what you uh, can use on a, um, a non-punitive, I guess, way to, to push kids forward. Um, but I also, I mean, you have to couple that always with, you have to have some sort of summative assessment um, that pairs with that. But if we're doing it right, then it's, it's more of a 60-40 of a, um, or 75-25. I don't know what the ratio would be, but where we have lots of formative assessment and then you do a check-in, which, which would be a summative along the way. But that is a, that's a tricky thing to do. Um, and um, I would, as an administrator, I would expect my teachers to be giving lots and lots of formative opportunities for kids, lots and lots of opportunities. And that um, that should weigh heavier in my mind in terms of um, what I was, quote, evaluating my staff on. Um, I would want to see lots of the formative and, and then the, the summative, in my mind, should take care of itself if you're doing the formative right. Great. All right, well, I think that pretty much covers everything there ever is to know about TPAP. Right? <laughs> everything. That's, that's oh, sure. Simple. That's, uh, yeah, just yeah, do it, right? Simple. It's super simple. Yeah. Um, okay, so next up we have on our little agenda, we have um, Essa. You yeah. Can, do you want to talk a little bit about, I'm sorry, Dr. Miller? <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Dr. David. Miller, yeah. <laughs> Would Dr. Miller like to talk a little bit about um, about SF Davidson? Sure. What, what, what's happening there? I know you referenced earlier that you had a, a point to connect. Yeah. So I think uh, along the the lines of this idea of progress and growth, I think the SF framework that we're working on as a state, um, we the uh, previous administration got us to a great point in the ESSA development, um, spending eight. 10 months on uh, bringing in stakeholder engagement into the process of developing the ESSA consolidated plan. And so now we're at a point where we're doing some real fine tuning with what the accountability part of that looks like. Um, and along the lines of this idea of growth or progress it are the measures that we're going to be using in the new achievement index. So I'll just spend a few minutes on this because we are moving beyond. We are beyond No Child Left Behind, thank goodness. And we're in kind of a new day with ESSA, which gives the state an opportunity to have a ton more autonomy um, and, and districts more autonomy about how we actually implement that. So as I mentioned, the swing of the pendulum from a real you know, overreach maybe of the federal um, accountability to a place where the state is really designing what this looks like. So we have... Um, Performance measures that are um, around uh, beyond the ELA and math proficiency measures, which were so familiar to us from No Child Left Behind, and moving beyond that um, 
into obviously graduation has been a, a part of the accountability framework, but we have graduation, ELA and math proficiency at the elementary and middle level. We have growth. Um, growth well, I know personally it's just been a pleasure to get to work with both of you guys. I know AWSP is very, very lucky to have both of you. Again, thanks to both of you guys for being here and uh, enjoyed the conversation. And hopefully out there you guys listening did as well. Required as a part of the accountability framework. And then um, even going beyond that to what we're calling school quality and student success, SQSS measures, um, we have we have two account or we have uh, an accountability measure that is part of elementary, middle, and high in chronic absenteeism. And then for high school, um, we also have dual credit or advanced course taking, as well as ninth graders on track. And so OSPI is in the process with a technical advisory committee looking at the definitions of all of those, the business rules of all of those, how they're actually calculated. And then the really the new uh, approach is looking at um, uh, more of a school profile rather than a summative score um, for schools. So shifting away from a kind of a, a frame where we've been with No Child Left Behind to more of a um, growth model or progress uh, model for schools. And as with TPEP, and I compare it a lot to TPEP, there are different measures, there are different things that go into great teaching or great leading of a building. And there are multiple measures that go into what a school, um, what a proficient or exemplary school looks like. And so we're taking a very similar approach with the development of the um, Achievement Index, the Accountability Framework. Um, it's been previously known as the Achievement Index, but um, as we move forward, um, the Accountability Framework that's going to be both meeting the federal requirements of Every Student Succeeds Act and the State Accountability Framework um, that we're doing in partnership with the State Board of Education. So we are... Um, uh, submitting the ESSA consolidated plan on September 18th. And so working backwards from that, we have um, multiple uh, opportunities for meetings to fine tune this and develop it. Um, and then the actual um, implementation will take place in the 18-19 school year. So next year, we're looking forward to a transition um, of sorts, both within school improvement, but also more importantly, we're looking at this as how does OSPI support all of the schools across that continuum? Not just looking at the ones in need of comprehensive or targeted support, but those also, or how do we award those? Those are not the two kind of ends of the system that we're looking at. We're looking at how do we support schools along a whole continuum? And primarily that will um, include kind of, I think of it as a Rubik's Cube of measures and subgroups. So on one end of the Rubik's Cube, you have the indicators that I just mentioned, ELA, math, proficiency, growth, grad rate, English language learners, uh, chronic absenteeism, ninth graders on track, and dual credit. But then on the other end of things, you have the subgroups, um, the 10 different subgroups, race and ethnicity, and programs. Um, so as we move forward, the, um, 
the work ahead is really to, one, define all of those indicators, and then, two, create a system of, by which um, schools, community members, parents can look at a dashboard of different indicators and look at subgroups and see where are we finding success and where are we still having issues with a particular subgroup. So a school might be out, oh, you know, performing well on almost every indicator in all students, but then when you start to look at subgroups, you see that you know, the, the um, foster youth or your native um, students uh, are actually falling short in multiple measures. So how do we break that apart and really support um, every kid? So one of the things that we've been talking with principals about is that, you know, obviously what this consolidated plan looks like will have an impact on their work. And once the state kind of seals the deal on what it looks like at the state level, districts will be responsible for driving out their piece. And, you know, OSPI has done, I think, a great job of having multiple stakeholders at the table, you know, being really transparent, lots of opportunities for feedback. So as you think about kind of that next phase, once our plan is approved at the state level and we start to take a look at what does this look like at the district level, how would you encourage both districts to kind of model that same set of beliefs around building their plan and principals or other stakeholders to come to the table and make sure that they're a part of as the plan as opposed to having the plan done to them? Yeah, that's a great question. There's, so there's nothing terribly magical about the date of September 18th, I would say. And I, I have been talking about this. So the submission piece of it is, is critically important, and the plan itself sets the direction. But I think equally important is the implementation of this plan. So you've got um, a plan on paper, and so many of us have three-ring binders, or now we have uh, folders on our desktop full of plans. So the real piece of this is to shift that and say, okay, how can we continue this transparent and stakeholder engagement with the actual implementation of what this looks like? So federally, we're required to... Um, meet the needs of our comprehensive and targeted school districts. Those are in the lowest 5%, those that are deemed um, just above that, but needing support in targeted subgroups. And so as we put that piece together, that will be critically important, but I'll go back to this is also about the continuum of support that we would might give to, to every school district, regardless of federal school improvement funds. Um, and so I, said, I think in, to that end, one of the things that we're doing is reshaping the way that OSPI is um, uh, having districts submit their, consult, their own consolidated plans. And so we're in a process of retooling our I-grant system so that it matches a consolidated plan similar to um, what we're submitting to the Fed. So districts will have the opportunity to sit, submit a consolidated plan that includes all of the pieces of the title programs, but also state programs and how all of that blends together. Um, and, then, and then worrying about the, the monetary pieces or the, the financial pieces that will feed those plans afterwards. So what is your plan of action against these accountability measures? And then how are you going to fund it? Should be a secondary, equally important, but secondary process. You shouldn't be bucketing all of your work around, oh, well, we have this amount of money to spend, so we're going to have to do this. Instead, what is the kind of uh, support that you need to give your schools and thus your students? 
and then the funds um, flow from that and are braided. Federal and state funds can be can be braided together. So that's the work. I wh what I hope happens from that is a cascading effect, or actually a bottom up approach, which is. We start with the school improvement plans. We start as making them really meaningful plans against the accountability measures, and then those roll up into a district plan, not the other way around, so that the schools really, the kids themselves, are really driving what these plans are uh, mean, and then you roll that up to a district level. And I know that's easier said than done, um, and that a lot of the district work can drive the school work, but it should be a back and forth. So. If we want school improvement plans to really be meaningful and more than just a uh, board of directors presentation that you give once a year, then we're going to actually use them to roll up into a consolidated district plan. Um, so, for example, all the professional learning that you're going to do across your district should be woven together into a, whether it's TPEP or Common Core or whatever professional learning, cultural competency that you're approaching, you should be able to see that both in the school improvement plans that you're doing as well as the district plans um, that you're uh, um, putting forward to the state. So that's the, um, the hope and the connections I know are going to be um, challenging, I think, to, to figure out, but I think we're going to get there. So this is your second stint at OSPI. So I know you've got you're a busy woman and you've got places to be. So mm -hmm. I'm going to start wrapping this up. Okay. Tell us a little bit about you know what brought you back and you know they say in sports that uh, the team's culture and personality mirrors that other head coach. So what have you seen from the new superintendent? And um, talk a little bit about again, like I said, what brought you back to OSPI and what the agency looks like. What is focused on moving forward? So I spent about three and a half years uh, working at the national level um, and got to experience, you know, left um, after a few years with uh, TPEP um, under my belt and lots of fun with that, but a lot of exhausting days of TPEP work and got to spend some time um, working with other states. And so... That was hugely beneficial because I got to see the good, bad, and the ugly across the country. Um, and what really brought me back was the good, bad, and the ugly across the country. <laughs> so specifically the bad and the ugly. Um, so, I mean, Washington, regardless of, of you know, all of our uh, <laughs> legislative session, is really doing things better than any other state. Um, and that was really confirmed for me over the last three years. So when Chris asked if I would come back and be his deputy, I really just jumped at the chance. I, um, I uh, really respect his uh, vision for education, and I knew that grounded in what he believed was a vision around um, elevating educator voice and having educators really involved in the, not just the, um, you know, kind of uh, afterthought input, but really there at the beginning of the process and thinking about getting their input, um, whether they're a superintendent, a principal, a counselor, a teacher, um, a parent, that this would be part of a of really a feedback loop that's going to be just what we do at OSPI. So that was exciting, and, and so I, I took 
the opportunity and I'm really glad that I did. It's been a incredibly, um, uh, <laughs> crazy, <laughs> um, exciting, invigorating, uh, five months, I guess, four and a half months. Um, really busy. And I think Chris brings a new focus and new vision. Um, I think, uh, it's, it's a great balance with what he brings to it and what I bring to the work. Um, my educator background and um, work with educator certification and um, educator effectiveness um, and his legislative background and understanding of the finance pieces. There's just a really good balance uh, with that. And then we have another team member on the executive team, Jamila Thomas, who brings a ton of experience uh, with state and agency work, um, working at the House uh, of Representatives for the last 10 years um, as chief of staff. So she brings a, a new perspective and a, and a really refreshing perspective. So, uh, and I had to take a new lens to the work because I'm in a different role, and that's it both, um, I had to forget a lot of things <laughs> and then, um, and, uh, come at it with a new, a new lens and a new vision. And that was, that was, has been really exciting. Um, we are doing a lot of reorganization, uh, and have been slowly doing that very thoughtfully. Bringing in new leadership has been a primary focus of mine on the, you know, more of the, about two thirds of the agency is, um, uh, is under my leadership, which is mostly teaching and learning related pieces. But from we just hired a new assistant superintendent of special education coming to us from Utah. She as a, is at the state agency there, and she's coming to work at OSPI um, to um, blending our uh, CTE department and our teaching and learning department. So we now have CTE as part of our learning and teaching. Uh, World. You teach and learn things in CTE. I know, I know. It is, it is crazy. <laughs> I know, it is a concept. So it's that is really exciting to see what things. And then, you know, there is new next. The next frontier is to to do some um, additional hiring around educators. So we'll have an educator department um, at OSPI and um, and making some tweaks. Obviously, ESSA will bring uh, a whole new world of of school improvement. Um, and planning there. So we are excited about the new focus. Um, and Chris's leadership is, uh, I think, um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the team we're putting together is one of, um, really grounded in educator, um, knowledge and experience and skill set, and that we will maintain a real transparent, um, administration through the next um, at least four years. So, That piece you mentioned about increased uh, you know, educator voice in, in terms of decisions has been real evident. We've had Chris at a board meeting in January, and he really impressed our room of principals. You know, a great listener, asked very good questions, and he also got to present, and um, really his presentation was just, you know, basically a focus group. You know, mm -hmm. we, we're kind of used to, okay, you know, here's the guy from OSPI, or here's you know, whatever person it is who has their agenda that they want to get out. And he did a really good job of surveying the room and asking for feedback and uh, being part of those discussions about what's going on in schools. So it's been really clear so far that that, that uh, emphasis on educator voice is really, really strong. And we've been fortunate to partner with uh, you guys, you know, SPI as an association, and 
it feels like that um, is much more of a partnership, you know, now and moving forward. I know you were at our board meetings not too long ago, mm -hmm. a really good conversation with our, our members there. Uh, so, and, and uh, for our members, um, I'm not sure when this podcast will end up being published, but uh, the spring slash summer edition of Washington Principal, uh, Superintendent Rick Dawes, written a really great article that I think you'll enjoy. So um, just continue to get his voice in front of our members, and, and he's definitely interested in, in our feedback. is something that we really appreciate. Anything to add, Ron? No, I, I just, you know, we work very closely with OSPI, and very quickly um, you could just tell that the affect of asking questions and, and um, seeking input is something that's valued and it's mm -hmm. it's appreciated. It's um, you know it's a, a two way partnership with with the field and the agency that supports the field, and it's it's been a nice nice feel so far. So we're we're happy about that. Yeah, so yeah. it's been it's been nice to see. Um, if you have anything you'd like to add, I mean, what what can, what does uh, OSPI need of principals, or if there's anything that you know you want their information or feedback on, or mm -hmm. just any words of encouragement you'd like to offer before close. So I would just keep the pressure on our office in terms of that feedback loop. We are really thinking about what that looks like, and because it can be um, it can be really trite, to be honest. Um, you know, to to invite a group of principals in and then get their feedback, and then we don't see you again for another three months. And so um, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what what is that actual feedback loop on a regular basis. Um, at, at meaningful times in the policy development really look like. So I would say my main advice is to keep the, keep the pressure on our office because that's the only way we're going to get better is if we're constantly changing and getting feedback from from you all. And knowing Gary, he will never be shy about giving us that feedback. So, um, well, you know, he is a spiritual <laughs> advisor to the state superintendent. That's true. It's true. Yeah, so our yes. executive director, you know, hired Chris for his first <laughs> teaching job. So... We actually had business cards made up for <laughs> Gary Kipp that said, virtual advisor to the state superintendent. Yeah. So, as, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that that will continue, but, um, but in, in all seriousness, we, we really are um, critically looking at how our agency, not just for principals, but across the spectrum of educators and also community members, how we're getting um, feedback ar around not just particular policy issues, McCleary, the big ones, ESSA, but even on a, you know, on a more granular level, how are we getting feedback around the pieces of our system that really people depend on um, beyond a compliance, beyond a bureaucratic agency? What can we do to help schools get better in order to get students better? And that's where we're really spending our time focused. Oh, perfect. That's a good way to wrap it up. Thank you uh, for your time, Dr. Miller. I know it was, we had fun here. I'm sure our, hopefully our audience you know, learned something. And, um, yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, You're Ron. Welcome. Thank you. All right. All right. Did, I, did you get what you wanted?